A recent study in Nature highlights that us wanting to eat sugar and fat actually does not have to do with our sense of taste. Keep listening on to find out more, only here on the People Scientist Podcast. People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on neuroscience, physiology, and nutrition. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. Hello, my People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast for episode 136, where every week I arm us with some scientific evidence so that we can all become a little bit smarter and a little bit healthier with every new episode. How are you feeling today? I hope that you're doing well, and I hope that I can give you something interesting to think about for today. So, what am I going to talk about? Well, there was a really interesting study that was published in the journal Nature this September by Lee and colleagues that came out from the Charles Zucker group. They aimed to identify the neurobiology behind why we want to eat fatty and sugary processed foods. Why do we enjoy consuming fat and sugar? What motivates us to do so? Even though this study was done in mice, I think it gives us some food for thought especially in the context of many of us losing our sense of taste temporarily with COVID in the last couple of years. It turns out that our desire and craving for sugary fatty foods doesn't necessarily have to do with our ability to taste. Surprising, isn't it? But before I get into the core takeaways of today's topic, let's start off, as we always do, with a foregone fact, where I share scientific finding from long ago. Back in 1968, Kennedy and Forate published a case study in the journal Psychological Reports. Back then, and even earlier, scientists went to some extreme lengths to help people lose weight who had battled with obesity. The scientists attempted to condition this individual to dislike their favorite foods with aversive or avoidance conditioning. This meant that they paired a noxious, horrible smell with the individual's most craved foods. They did this repeatedly in the hopes of having the individual now be conditioned to dislike these unhealthy foods. Wolp in 1954 did an even more unethical conditioning and had shocked a woman's arm very powerfully every time she imagined and reenacted eating her favorite food. In this particular case study by Kennedy in 1968, a woman complained of strong, uncontrollable food cravings, and she'd weighed 322 pounds. Now, the procedure included her going on a 1,000-calorie diet per day for nine days. Then she was given an oxygen mask to put over her face, and this oxygen mask would allow her to smell her favorite foods, like french fries and cakes. Then once she signaled that she could smell her favorite food, they switched the smell to a highly undesirable, 
noxious smell, which was butyric acid. This has been described as smelling like vomit. They repeatedly switched from her favorite foods to this horrible smell. And each session lasted 20 minutes, which I'm sure for her seemed a lot longer. She underwent this 41 times over a 22-week period. Now, during this period, she lost 30 pounds. Even though she lost 30 pounds, the scientists were surprised that she hadn't lost more weight over the 22-week period. The reason why is because they noted that she simply increased her intake of other foods instead. So this aversive or avoidance conditioning technique did not get to the root cause of her food cravings, but rather just created an unhealthy relationship with food. That is why today avoidance conditioning of food is seen as unethical and unsuccessful. So instead of eating french fries and cakes, for example, she may have switched to chips and candy instead. Not necessarily a healthy adaptation to eating. So there you have it. Back then, scientists used to shock people or have them smell foul things as a treatment for overeating, which we now know today is not the way to go about it. Are we any further along today? Keep listening on to find out. So now let's get into the core takeaways of today's topic on the neuroscience of liking versus wanting sugary fatty foods. A very common side effect that many of us experienced in the last couple of years was a loss of taste if we by chance came down with COVID. But one interesting observation in relation to that was that many of us still had a craving to eat delicious food. We still wanted and craved and enjoyed eating sweets or fatty foods, even though we could not taste it. Why is that? Well, in today's episode, I'm going to uncover that for us. Now, besides its relevance to our loss of taste, this topic is also relevant for us to understand our cravings, to understand artificial sweeteners, and any future direction in science for battling overconsumption of sugary and fatty processed foods. And it turns out that independent of taste, very specific cells in a nerve in our body called the vagus nerve is activated by the cells in our small intestine that sends a signal to a region in the back of our brain. This signal says, hey, this is good. This is satisfying. And you want to continue consuming this. Turns out that certain nutrients send this signal and certain ingredients don't. For example, amino acids and fatty acids do, but artificial sweeteners don't. How can we use this information to our advantage? I also talk about sour and bitter taste in the absence of sweet and salt taste to help curb our sugary and fatty food cravings. Keep listening on for those scientific details. Mizoguchi, in 2020, in the European Journal of Physiology, wrote of the physiology of us sensing flavor from food. Now, in order for us to enjoy food and beverages, it is a combination of taste and smell, or otherwise called gustation and olfaction. Taste seems to be encoded by the gustatory cortex of our brain, 
smell is encoded by the olfactory area of our brain. These brain regions have connections that move outward, like branches from a tree trunk, that converge onto a brain region that encodes for our ability to overall detect flavor. That brain region is the agranular insular cortex. Flavor is therefore the combination of taste and smell. Without one of these, our ability to sense flavor can be greatly hindered. Imagine carrying a large, heavy item with two hands. Now imagine that you can't use one of your hands. How difficult and probably impossible it will now be to carry this heavy item, because this task requires two hands. It is the same thing with our ability to detect flavor. It requires smell from the olfactory area, and it requires taste from the gustatory cortex. Once these two signals merge onto the agranular insular cortex of our brain, we have the beauty of being able to sense flavor. So what does this mean for individuals that have difficulty sensing flavor? Many of us can relate to that if we have a cold or had COVID in the past two years. Well, Mounier in the journal Frontiers in Physiology in 2021 wrote about how and why we lost our sense of taste and smell and our ability to sense flavor with the virus. It is believed that viruses like COVID impacted our sense of taste because it targeted the olfactory epithelium sustenacular cells. So what are these cells? Well, imagine at the very back inside of your nose, high up there, is this group of cells responsible to detect smells. These cells also happen to detoxify anything potentially harmful that we could inhale. It turns out that the virus can result in the release of immune cells and can result in inflammation that damages these specific cells that sit far back inside our nose. In fact, this group of cells sitting inside the back of our nose high up seems to be lost, and instead cellular debris was seen in the nasal cavity of patients who lost their sense of smell and taste with the virus. So some individuals did not lose their sense of taste or their ability to sense flavor. Some did only for a short while, and some for a very long period of time with COVID. So what determines that? Well, there are some hypotheses. One is the viral load that we were exposed to. So were we exposed to just a small amount of viral particles or a large amount? As that could predict the immune and inflammation response that we had. A second hypothesis is that if we had a compromised olfactory epithelium already, for example, due to reasons such as old age, severe allergies, damage from drugs being inhaled through the nose, or perhaps our cells are more sensitive to the virus because of these reasons. Sometimes in the recovery from the virus, the olfactory cells may have been replaced with respiratory cells during the healing process. And unfortunately, respiratory cells don't have the capacity for smell detection. So these could be potential reasons as to why someone was more likely to lose their sense of ability to detect flavor and why it could be longer lasting in some individuals versus others. So the big question that many of us have are, why do we still want to eat? Why do we still enjoy eating even if we can't taste? So let's dive into the recent paper published by Lee and colleagues in Nature this year. This study is entitled Gut-Brain Circuits for Fat Preference. 
First, let's keep in mind all of these experiments were performed in mice. Now, there are a lot of similarities in how the brain is connected and functions in mice and humans, but there can be some differences. So we can keep this in mind as we go through the study's findings. Firstly, the scientists wanted to differentiate for us the difference between liking and wanting for sugar and fat. They define liking as our response in the short term. That is mediated by the taste receptors on our tongue and the olfactory epithelial, epithelium of our nasal cavity. So for example, us liking chocolate is because it tastes sweet and has flavor. We can immediately sense that when we eat it. That is defined as liking. This is what was lost when we have a cold or lost when we had COVID. Now the other component to eating sugar and fat and, and desiring it is this category called wanting it. This occurs more so over time and is controlled instead not by the mouth and nose, but by the gut-brain axis. This is more so about nutrient sensing. So when we eat chocolate, it gets digested by our stomach and small intestine into smaller molecules like sugar and fat and fatty acids. These are sensed by certain receptors in our small intestine, and that sends a signal to our brain that says, yes, this is good. This gives us energy. Keep eating this thing. This does not seem to be lost with COVID or with having a cold. So this is why, even though we might temporarily lose our sense of taste or our ability to detect flavor in our mouth and nasal cavity, we still have a system that is reinforcing us to want sugary and fatty foods. So to reiterate briefly, liking sugary fatty foods is our immediate reaction and is dictated by our mouth and nose. This is what disappeared with COVID for many people. The other system motivating our food intake of processed foods is the gut-brain axis that senses the nutrients and sends a signal to our brain to say, yes, this is good, keep eating this. This stays intact with COVID. More specifically, the gut-brain axis was determined in this study as the enteroendocrine cells of our small intestine sending a signal via the vagus nerve to the caudal nucleus of the solitary tractus, which if you recall from my previous episodes, is my absolute favorite brain region. This brain region, abbreviated the NTS, is really fascinating as it plays a role in our eating, feeling satisfied and full, and even further along the spectrum plays a role in aversion or feeling sick from eating too much or feeling sick from consuming a bitter drug like nicotine. It also happens to be activated with tasting bitter compounds, which is an area of my own interest in my research. So how did the scientists prove this liking versus wanting? Well, they put sugar or fat directly into the stomach of the mice. They completely bypassed the mouth and the ability to taste and smell. And they had noted activation of the intestinal vagus nerve brain circuit, or the gut-brain axis, that reinforces the, hey, this is good feeling. When the scientists silenced the vagus nerve, this response was gone. Then the scientists wanted to be even more specific. They wanted to find out which cells in the vagus nerve responded to sugar and fat. What do these cells look like? Because once we can find out that information, it gives us something specific to target 
for sugar and fat craving. They found a few things. Cholecystokinin cells in the vagus nerve seem to be very important in our wanting of sugar and fat. So what is cholecystokinin? Cholecystokinin is a hormone that can result in the release of digestive enzymes and bile acids in order to help us in the digestive process. But now we're realizing that it also seems to be very important in our feeling of being satisfied from eating. When they happened to block cholecystokinin receptors in the vagus nerve, it reduced the circuit's response to sugar, fat, and amino acids. Now, how can we target this to help with sugar and fat cravings? Well, cholecystokinin is released by our small intestine in response specifically to amino acids and fatty acids. So if we eat something rich in protein or fat, like, for example, a steak, hamburger, avocado, eggs, cheese, cholecystokinin will be released. Now, the release of cholecystokinin is important for our feeling satisfied and also us wanting these foods. This is in part why higher protein, fat, and lower carbohydrate diets, like a low-carb diet or a ketogenic diet, may be effective at inducing feelings of satisfaction and fullness while curbing cravings. There are other mechanisms as to how a lower-carbohydrate diet may also help reduce food cravings, and that is, for example, that there will be lower levels of insulin circulating around typically on a lower-carbohydrate diet as well. We know that insulin also plays a role in food cravings too. For example, one common way to stimulate eating in individuals that battle with disordered eating like anorexia nervosa is actually to raise their insulin levels to motivate them to consume more food. So if you drop insulin, like with a low-carbohydrate diet, it may also help with food cravings. The scientists in this study also tested different specific fatty acids. Now, the fat that we eat in our diet is made up of smaller components called fatty acids. Imagine bricks to a brick wall. These fatty acids can include saturated fatty acids, medium-chain fatty acids, and long-chain fatty acids like the omega-6s and omega-3s that I'm sure you've heard of. So do you think any specific fatty acids activated the vagus nerve more so than others? If so, which ones do you think? Even though the scientists didn't quantify it, when I look at the figures, it looks like hexanoic acid, which is also called caproic acid, activated the vagus nerve the most. Now, caproic acid is a short or medium-chain fatty acid normally found in small amounts in apples, butter, blue cheese, and pecans, for example. It also looks like the omega-3 fatty acids, alpha-linolenic acid, or ALA, and docosahexanoic acid, or DHA, activated the vagus nerve strongly as well. These omega-3 fatty acids can be found in flaxseed, hempseed, chia seed, walnuts, salmon, or sardines, for example. So the question is, do we want to activate our gut-brain axis to curb are sugar and fat wanting or not? I right, so there's the question. We don't actually know the answer to that quite yet. Activating this gut-brain axis a lot by eating a lot of sugar and fatty foods may in fact reinforce us to want to eat more sugar and fat. However, what if we can activate our gut-brain axis with something healthier than sugary fatty foods? 
That's where the suggestion of eating proteins rich in amino acids and foods rich in alpha-linolenic acid and docosahexaenoic acid may come in handy. This could look like a diet rich in flaxseed, chia seeds, salmon, skinless chicken breast, moderate amount of cheese, and lower intakes of high sugar processed foods. So the next question that came to mind was, are there any supplements or medications that can help activate this gut-brain circuit for us to help us feel satisfied, to help reduce sugar and fat cravings? Well, this is what the scientists wanted to find out next. So next they did some very elegant and complex experiments that included single cell sequencing to really identify these fat and sugar wanting cells even further. Again, to understand what cells in our gut-brain axis regulate our craving of sugar and fat. Because if we can understand that, then that can give us targets and ideas on how to control our sugar and fat intake. Let me give an analogy to help explain this experiment and this approach. Let's say you see your friend and you notice that there is something new about them. You're not quite sure what it is yet. This is equivalent to the scientist's finding that the gut-brain axis was necessary for food and sugar wanting, independent of taste and smell. Then let's say as you look at your friend, you notice that the reason why they look different is because of their hairstyle. It's their hair that's different. Well, this is similar to the scientists observing that it is the cholecystokinin cells, specifically in this gut-brain axis, that is responsible for us wanting sugar and fat. Then let's say you notice that it is specifically that your friend got highlights done to their hair. That that was the even more specific reason why they look different. Well, this is equivalent to the scientist doing single cell sequencing right now to be even more specific in finding out the cells needed for sugar and fat wanting. Now, they noted that the neurons in the vagus nerve that responded to sugar and fat the most had a high expression of certain RNA transcripts. For example, this was VIP and TRPA1. These neurons expressing these two, two specific RNA transcripts were responsible for fat wanting. They also noted a combination of proteins like GPR40 and CD36 were also necessary for us to want to consume fat. SGLT1 protein, which is a sodium glucose link transport 1, was necessary for sugar wanting. Now to put this into context, the most exciting medicine going through the final phases of clinical trials right now for type 2 diabetes is inhibiting the receptors on these sugar-wanting cells. SGLT1 and SGLT2 blockers or inhibitors or antagonists are proving to be extremely effective medications and not only helping patients manage their diabetes, but also to help them with weight loss. A review by the SGLT1 inhibitors for diabetes and weight loss was written by scientists in many different papers. For example, there's a publication this year by Macari in the Journal of Medicinal Chemistry that reviews these inhibitors for diabetes and weight loss. So now the question is, can we target these specific cells with a supplement or food ingredient? Does it need to be a medication? The answer is that we don't know quite yet. I have talked previously in other episodes, like in episode 59, about bitter and sour taste as a way to reduce sugar and fatty food cravings. And that is because they can act on a similar gut-brain axis to induce satisfaction and fullness. 
However, they don't contain the calories and the unhealthy components that a sugary, fatty, processed food might. The reason why bitter and sour might do this is because through evolution, bitter taste indicated potentially poisonous compounds in nature, and sour indicated potentially spoiled food. So our natural response to these tastes is to stop consuming them for fear of them being harmful. However, this does not work when bitter and sour taste are coupled with something reinforcing and delicious like sugar and salt, as sugar and salt signify calories and electrolytes. Those are things that we need to survive. So sugar and salty reinforces us wanting to eat them because we need those things to survive, whereas bitter and sour innately our body is wired to avoid them. Today, we have many safe foods that taste bitter and taste sour that we might be able to use to our advantage to help curb our sugary and fatty food cravings. So if that topic interests you, you can go back to episode 59 and give that one a listen. Now, I also want to talk briefly about artificial sweeteners, as many people consume the sweeteners as a way to curb their sugar cravings. Now, this is an interesting and complex topic because artificial sweeteners act on that immediate liking system that involves our taste and smell, but it does not act on that long-term wanting system. So if you recall earlier in the episode, I I said that these two systems contribute to us craving and, and desiring sweet and fatty things. That initial taste and flavor system in our mouth and nose when we consume something and then the nutrient sensing in our gut-brain axis. Those are the two things that motivate us to eat these sugary, fatty foods. So artificial sweeteners activate our initial liking in the mouth, but they do not activate our gut-brain axis because they don't have the ability to act on the receptors in our small intestine. So they do not send a signal via the vagus nerve to my favorite brain region, the NTS. So this either might help with cravings, or it might not. I think it will depend on the individual, and how much their gut-brain axis is normally being activated, and how much real sugar they normally consume. If you personally find that artificial sweeteners help curb your cravings, and helps you stay on track with healthy eating, then that's great. But many people may find that it does not help, and the reason why it may not help is because it's missing half of the puzzle. Half of the puzzle might be enough for some people, but artificial sweeteners may not be the solution to combating sugar cravings for others. And that is because it's only acting on half of our sensory system, which is in the mouth, but not in the intestines. So that is a wrap, my people scientist army. Some recent scientific evidence on the neuroscience of why we like and want sugary and fatty foods independent of our ability to taste. Us liking these foods involves our taste and smell coming from our mouth and nasal cavity to generate flavor. This is what can be lost, though, when we have a cold or had COVID. The second component to us desiring food is the wanting, which is more complex and happens over a longer period of time and involves craving and nutrient sensing. This is regulated in our small intestine, sending a signal via our vagus nerve to the back of our brain in a region called the NTS. Now, scientists here have identified that very specific cells in the vagus nerve 
are responsible for sugar wanting and fat wanting. These include cells that express RNA transcripts like SGLT1, cholecystokinin, or TRPA1. And we might be able to target these very specific cells and receptors with medications like the new SGLT1 and 2 inhibitors that are going through clinical trials right now. Another way that we might be able to target these specific receptors is by eating amino acids or high-protein foods and fatty acids as well, like following a lower-carbohydrate diet that's rich in healthy proteins and fats. I also suggest in this episode the role of bitter and sour taste in the absence of sweet and salty in order to help curb sugar and fatty food cravings. And I go into more detail back in episode 59 if you want to give that a listen. So I hope that this episode was interesting for all of you. If you liked the episode, then please leave me a comment, send me a message, or feel free to buy me a coffee to say thanks for the show. The links on how to do all of that are in the description box to this episode. If you want to see some of the studies I cite in each episode, then make sure to follow me on social media, where I share more information about each episode's topic. I hope that you all have a wonderful week, and I look forward to meeting you all back here for another episode in two weeks' time. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates.